Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. So there's a familiar arc to more than one of the stories of Anton Chekhov. It's like this. A character becomes unexpectedly happy, but then comes to his senses, sees his miserable life for what it is, and ends up in a state of utter despair. Not to generalize unfairly, but did I mention Chekhov was Russian? In one, a soldier steps into a darkened room at a party where he receives a kiss that's meant for somebody else. For days, he thinks of nothing except his future life with his mystery beloved. But then he remembers what a pathetic, unattractive clod he is, returns to his previous state of hopeless despair, and the story's over. In another one, a vagrant holds forth on the farm he's going to have one day in the promised land of Siberia, where land is free and the rivers are wide, until one of the men escorting him out of town reminds him he can barely stumble along the road thereon, He could never make a trip to Siberia, even if life there were as idyllic as he imagines. The prisoner sees his point and wilts into a state of hopeless despair. The end. I know you're trying to figure out whether to spell Chekhov with a C or a T so you can look him up at novel next time, right? But this third example also seems to address the topic of human happiness more directly. Get comfortable. This is why we spread these comfortable chairs out today. I want a tiny Chekhov to actually be perched on your shoulder as we consider the Beatitudes this fine All Saints Sunday. Here's the gist of his story titled Gooseberries. Two men, Ivan and Birkin, are out hunting with their dogs one perfect afternoon in the the countryside. And as they walk, Birkin reminds Ivan that he owes him a story. So Ivan says he'll tell him one about his brother. But as, as he's lighting up his pipe, it begins to rain dampening their spirits as well. Fortunately, they see their friend Aliohan's farm off across the meadow and make a run for it. When they arrive, Aliohan greets them warmly. His maid, Pelagaya, brings them towels and dry clothing and also happens to be the most beautiful creature our soggy hunters have ever seen. Aliohan suggests that they head to his bathing cabin where he slips into the bath himself. He's so overdue for a wash that the water turns to ink. Ivan, however, jumps off straight into the river and has a rapturous swim in the rain, diving to the bottom and resurfacing over and over again, exclaiming, by God and Lord have mercy on me. The men then head back to the house where they're given silk dressing gowns and warm slippers and settle into armchairs in the drawing room where, of course, pretty Pelagaya brings them a tray of tea and jam They are warm and dry and clean and, well, don't you think it's just about the coziest scene in the whole history of the patriarchy? The men should at least be laughing uncomfortably at that. (laughs) It's here, after this extended interlude, that Ivan returns to his story. Ivan's brother Nikolay worked unhappily in a government office and he dreamed of owning an estate in the country with servants' quarters and a gooseberry patch. He scrimped and saved for years, married a rich rich widow just for her money, 
and literally starved her to death with this stinginess, according to Ivan. When she died, he took their money and bought the estate he'd always wanted, planting the gooseberry bushes himself. Understandably, Nikolay's happiness, as he ate plate after plate of his precious gooseberries, offended his brother Ivan. But not only because this dream come true was so ill-gotten. As Ivan lay in bed in his brother's estate one night, he realized an unpleasant truth about the whole world. Obviously, he tells his present listeners, the happy man is at ease only because the unhappy ones bear their burdens in silence. And if there were not this silence, happiness would be impossible. It is a general hypnosis. Behind the door of every contented, happy man, there ought to be someone standing with a little hammer and continually reminding him with a knock that there are unhappy people, that however happy he may be, life will sooner or later show him its claws and trouble will come to him. Kind of makes you wonder if Chekhov himself is that little man with the hammer. Well, the two men in their dressing gowns and warm slippers think Ivan's told a pretty lousy story. Aliohan would rather hear one involving groats or hay or something relevant to his life. Birkin heads off to bed. The others follow. And here's how it ends. The wide, cool beds, which had been made by the lovely Pelagaya, gave off a pleasant smell of clean linen. Ivan Ivanich undressed silently and got into bed. Lord, forgive us sinners, he murmured, and drew the bedclothes up over his head. His pipe which lay on the table, smelled strongly of burnt tobacco, and Birkin, who could not sleep for a long time, kept wondering where the unpleasant odor came from. The rain beat against the windowpane all night. All right, well, I seem to have spent half this sermon on the opening story today, but here's why. I think Chekhov was exploring something that interested Jesus in the Beatitudes. Namely, the relationship between happiness and hardship. For the Greek word usually translated blessed refers to a state of mind, not blessedness only in the eyes of God. Happy are the meek is actually an ancient and very valid translation. We'll return to the question in a minute, but a few more things on the story first. The first is that Ivan is a piece of work. You gathered as much, right? But Ivan's complex. Did you notice that he cried out to God twice? Once in ecstasy as he swam in that river, by God, Lord, have mercy on me, he prays as he embodies a human being fully alive to a moment in God's glorious creation. He cries out again in the end as he pulls Pelagaya's clean-smelling linens over his head in a thankless huff, muttering, Lord, forgive us sinners while his smelly pipe, the obverse of Pelagaya's sheets, keeps his poor friend awake into the night. This story took hold of me, however, because the case Ivan makes against happy folk like his brother is actually pretty convincing. He sounds like the psalmist who wrote, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain, their bodies are sound and sleek, they are not plagued as others are. A few centuries later, 
Jesus regularly disrupted the lives of people who'd grown too comfortable with their power and privileged. It's probably what got him killed, right? Chekhov himself was the son of a poor grocer. He studied medicine to support his parents and his siblings, so he wasn't born to privilege at all. It's that old cliche about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. I think both Jesus and Chekhov kind of know how to do this from time to time. I think the Beatitudes were such disruption. The prevailing wisdom in Jesus' day was that your misfortune was probably your fault. God or the gods were punishing you for some sin, so you kind of deserve to be unhappy. Or if you're prosperous, they were rewarding your virtue. Yeah, there were some short-term exceptions, but even the author of Psalm 73 goes on to say, those rich sinners will eventually perish when God puts an end to them. So for Jesus to say that there is a happy blessedness that's available to the poor in spirit, to the mournful, the hungry, even the persecuted, is a radical upheaval of the way people understood their lives and their gods. This thinking's alive and well, by the way. You and I, you might say, live in a kind of faux meritocracy, which means the collective myth of ours is Horatio Alger's, not Jesus's. We think we've earned most of what we have, and too often we probably believe the poor, the hungry, the persecuted brought on most of their problems themselves. They should have been better parents or harder workers or possess some other virtue we think happens to be the secret to our success. Surely this is just a secular liberal democracy's version of the self-serving illusions Jesus disrupted. For Jesus, and maybe for Chekhov too, it's only while holding this truth about the cruel unfairness of the world firmly in mind that we can faithfully add this life-saving and yet that I think Jesus also wants us to see which is that Jesus wants people who don't think they could possibly be counted among the blessed to find happiness. He wants them to believe against all messages to the contrary that they are the absolute apples of God's loving eye. In the end, I don't think Jesus wants us to be Ivans, at least not Ivan at his worst. He's right to name the injustices our comfortable lives depend on, but if our mission is simply to spread more unhappiness like a foul-smelling pipe that distracts us from the kindness of strangers or the gift of rain on a river that falls on the just and the unjust alike, if we do nothing to change the lot of people we've, who've, who've received too little comfort and justice, just make scowling proclamations about the people we think are the problem, have we really done anything but add to the store of unhappiness and hardship in this broken and beautiful world? We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world, wrote Jack Gilbert. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. All right, this long sermon's almost over. And it's probably high time I made at least a fleeting reference to All Saints Sunday, right? Well, I think that All Saints Day is actually the church's way of radically altering our definitions of blessedness. 
Because the Feast of All Saints doesn't limit itself to remembering the lives of the conspicuously blessed and the good. There are manipulative Nicolays and dour Ivans aplenty among the saints we celebrate on this day. The gospel of grace means that unimaginable forms of brokenness and sin will not separate us forever from the loving heart of God. Not forever. And if we truly let our hearts and minds absorb how Jesus says blessedness can actually manifest in a life, well, maybe we'd actually be present to help our neighbor to lift her poor spirit and satisfy her hunger and thirst in deeper ways than the ones that just reinforce my own virtuousness. Maybe we'd also receive the next unfolding moment of our lives for the unmerited gifts that they are. Let's not praise the devil with these brief, complicated lives of ours. Let's set ourselves to being people who believe in a strange and happy blessedness whose arms are wider than any of us could imagine. This All Saints Sunday, let's live with the stubbornness of Ivan at his best, expressing our gratitude and gladness with backstrokes in the rain, if that's what's called for. We just need to do so without denying that the world is still a ruthless furnace. And if Jesus and maybe even our new Russian friend are to be trusted, what this world actually needs most from us is not that we become more hopeless and more miserable in a misguided form of solidarity. Rather, it's that our small definitions of blessedness expand. And that, as they do, God's belovedness for every last human being who's ever lived on God's good earth makes its way through our lives and into the lives of people who have yet to hear the happy news that they are very much among the blessed and beloved saints of God as well. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.